The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday morning at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So, I was um, doing a little research yesterday, and I was on the internet kind of checking out some different things, and I found this website, and I'm going to be honest, it's pretty exciting for me, it's called statisticbrain.com. Now, I know for a lot of you that's not exciting, but it's very exciting for me. As a matter of fact, I got a little sidetracked for a while um, because there's just any number of really cool numbers you can find on statisticbrain.com. But I was looking for something in particular, and what I wanted to kind of figure out was this idea of New Year's resolutions, like, does it really work? You know, is it something that people really use successfully? So I looked up, I said, first thing I want to know is what are the top ten things that people put down as their New Year's resolution. So here's a list of the top 10 things for 2014. They don't have 2015 yet because we haven't failed our New Year's resolutions yet. But the top 10 things for 2014 that people put down as New Year's resolution in order. Number one, I'm sure you can guess, lose weight. Number two, get organized. Number three, spend less, save more. That's not ambiguous. Number four, enjoy life to the fullest. Number five, Staying fit and healthy. Kind of like number one. Number six, learn something exciting. Number seven, quit smoking. Number eight, help others in their dreams. Thought that was interesting. Number nine, fall in love. And number ten, spend more time with family. And I thought, you know, none of those are really that surprising. I mean, those are a lot of those are ones that I want to work on. Um, you know, but th- there's nothing there that really tells me does this process work? So I went on a little further and I started looking at some statistics. So I want to share some statistics with you. Stay with me. These are actually fun statistics. So the first statistic I want to share is who is it that actually makes New Year's resolutions? And here's the statistics. The percent of Americans who usually make New Year's resolutions, 45%. So less than half of us usually make New Year's resolutions. The percent of Americans who infrequently make New Year's resolutions, so like their New Year's resolution this year might be to make one next year is 17%, and the percent of Americans who absolutely never make New Year's resolutions is 38%. So it's interesting, it's kind of evenly divided, you know, between people that absolutely do, people that absolutely don't, and the people in the middle not sure what they do and when they're going to do it. So uh, I thought that was interesting to see that, because I would have thought that the percentage of people that make New Year's resolutions is much higher, because there's this whole idea around it that everybody does it. So I went a little deeper, and I said, all right, how many of these how many of these people are actually successful in their resolutions? And here's what it said. The percent of people who are successful in achieving their resolution, 8%. 8%. The percent who have infrequent success, I'm not sure how they define that, 49%. Infrequent success, I mean, I guess that means you kind of did it. And the percent who never succeed and fail in their resolution each year, 24%. Now, it's interesting to note, that doesn't add up to 100 I'm not sure what happened with that one, but that's what it said. And it was like the University of Akron, so sorry if you're from Akron. But the one thing it said is people who explicitly make resolutions are 10 times more likely to attain their goals than people who don't explicitly make resolutions. What that means is people that sit down and go, I'm going to do this particular thing are 10 times more likely than people that go, yeah, this year I'm going to be better, or this year I'm going to 
I'm going to feel better or something like that. I said, all right, let me see what else. I want to kind of put these in categories. So what types of resolutions are most popular? Self-improvement or educated-related resolutions, 47%. It's the most popular category. Number two is weight-related resolutions at 38%, which kind of surprised me. I thought that would be like number one, you know, after eating 1,000 pounds of turkey over the holidays. Money-related resolutions, 34%. A little bit surprised by that one. And then relationship-related resolutions. Interesting. 31%. Now, just to be clear, those don't add up to 100 either. But some people make more than one resolution, so that's why I worked out that way. I did follow up on that one and found that answer. So I was like, okay, this is interesting. It's not really terribly surprising, but I wonder how that breaks down by age. And I found two statistics about age that I think are very interesting. Percent of people in their 20s who achieve their resolution each year, 39%. That's a lot. Percent of people over 50 who achieve the resolution each year, 14%. Now, I'm in between those, so I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I know it's going downhill. <laughs> I mean, uh, 39 to 14% of people over 50, that was kind of, kind of crazy. So one last statistic. The length that resolutions last, what's, and this was very surprising to me. Resolutions maintained through the first week, 75% of people made it through the first week. Not that surprising. Through two weeks, 71%, a little more surprising. Past one month, 64%. That was very surprising. So 64% of people that made a resolution made it through a month and kept the resolution. And then past six months, 46%. I was blown away by that number. I was thinking once we got to two months, it'd be down to like 10%. But what they're saying is if you made a resolution, there's a 46% chance you can make it through six months. And I would say that's success. Now, they didn't say how many people made it through the year. Maybe, maybe there's not, maybe it's zero. But I just began to think about what does that mean? You know, what does that look like? And I thought, well, if, if you're going to make a resolution, what would you do to make yourself successful? Like what would it take? And I know one of the things that, that it is, it's nice is to have a program you know, for whatever you're going to do. And Melissa and I went away this past week, and we spent some time at Disney. I know that's shocking. Um, and we spent some of that time working through, like, a goal-setting program and setting our goals for the new year. And it's interesting because I've probably done, I don't know, I'm one of those people that always does the New Year's resolutions. And I've probably done New Year's resolutions for, I'm not going to tell you how long. And I, I've been through a bunch of these goal-setting things, and they all kind of end up kind of being the same thing, you know. It's kind of a a new face on an old idea. You know, there's not any really new information about goal setting. So that's one way you could do it. Another way is you could have motivational tools, you know, things that help you uh, get excited about your resolutions. Maybe it's a picture of when you weighed less or a picture of you playing football when you're in high school or or something that helps you motivate you towards having that or achieving that goal. And then another thing would be accountability partners. You might say to a friend, hey, I want to read more this year. So let's read together, and let's hold each other accountable. We'll get together once a week and read a chapter a week. So it's accountability partners. And then I thought another way people want to try to achieve success is through coaches. Maybe you get a coach that could help you with your resolutions. For instance, if your resolution was to be healthy, you might want one of the healthiest people ever heard of, Jack LaLanne. Everybody know Jack LaLanne? If you're over 40. Okay. Um, Currently, it would be Dr. Oz. I know there was an extended period of time in our house where Dr. Oz was all over my DVR. 
Um, finally, you got Melissa to delete some of those. Or you might go to Pastor Dan. You want to be healthy. Sorry, it's right there. What if you wanted to make more money and get a better job? What if that was your resolution? Well, you'd probably go to somebody who is where you want to be. And you'd say, hey, tell me how you got there or help me learn more about how to, how to move forward, how to advance in my job, how to make more money. What if you want to get a better education? You might go talk to a school advisor. You might talk to somebody who you think, who you see is, is intellectual and say, you know, how did you get there? What, what, what are the keys to you getting there? What if you wanted to manage stress better? I know that's one for me. Manage stress better. I think if, if, if I wanted a coach to manage stress, I would try to think of the most mellow person I could think of. For me, that's my brother. My brother, a little bit younger than me, he's three years younger than me. He's a psychologist. Um, my parents are also counselors. Yeah, family get-togethers are very analytical. <laughs> Between my math and their counseling and my sister just referees. But he is the most mellow person like nothing bothers him. He probably sees 30, 40 people a week, and it doesn't bother him. You know, he's carrying the weight of people's issues and helping them figure it out, and he's just always been that way. I can really honestly only remember one time in our adult life where he and I got into a heated argument. One time. He is just the most mellow. So if I was going to have a coach for managing stress, I'd probably call my brother and say, Hey, Eric, um, how do you do it? And he would say, About time. But none of those things, those things kind of give us these success rates that we see. And while they're, they could be good, what if we looked for help in a different area? What if there's a different way to look at it? And that's really what I want to talk about today. There's a story that I want to look at. It's called The Parable of the Talents. It's in Matthew 25. And this, I think if we look at that story and we just look at it a little bit differently than we normally do, this is a story that some of you are familiar with. But I think if we look at it a little differently, we'll see an interesting opportunity to look at our new year a little different and how we can maybe see a success rate that's higher than the statistics say. So this story, just to set it up, it's a parable Jesus is telling as he walks. By the way, if one of your resolutions is to read the Bible this year, Matthew is a great place to start. It's basically the story of Jesus' life as he, his time on the earth. So it's a great place to start if you're trying to figure out where to start that. But this is a story, Jesus is telling a story, and he's sharing a parable about a landowner. And the way it worked back in those days is landowners would go on long journeys And when they went on these journeys, they would leave their resources, whatever they were, in the hands of accountants or servants. And they would separate them out and say, hey, I'm going to be gone. And they'd never know how long they were going to be gone because they didn't have, like, MapQuest or Google or anything like that. So they would just leave and figure it out as they went along. So they would say, hey, you're in charge of this. Take care of it until I get back. And the idea would be you would take those resources and try to create more resources for your master or your owner. So we're going to read in Matthew 25, if we'll flip over to there, Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. I want to read through this story, break it down a little bit, and then I want to take a little different spin on it. So if we look in verse 14, it says, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, then he went away. Now, let me just clear up this idea of talents first. This is a very um, misunderstood term. A talent in this case is not a valuable. It's not something that you do well. It's a unit of measure. It's actually a unit of weight. So the idea is 
he gave five units of measure of something, and we don't know what it was. Typically, a talent would be used to measure gold or silver or any other valuable, but we don't know what specifically it was, and I think because that's not the point. The point is not how much he gave, but in what proportion he gave. So the varying diff- there's varying ideas. I kind of did some research trying to figure out how much it would be today, and I'll be honest with you. I, c- I got numbers from crazy numbers from in the millions to in the hundreds of dollars. So, But the one thing all of the scholars agree on is based on this information, this particular person, this master, was a very wealthy person. So he had trusted a significant part of his wealth to these servants. So let's read on and see what happens. In verse 16 it says, He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, that may seem a little strange, but it was common practice in the time. If you wanted to keep something secure, you would bury it. Matter of fact, archaeologists today still find that type of thing buried. So that's not completely out of the realm of, of reality that he would bury the money. But it's interesting, a couple of things that are interesting about how he did this or how he broke this down. First of all, the relative value that he gave each individual is interesting, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. It uses the word traded when it comes to talking about what they did with the talents, and what that means is over time, they made different business transactions. This wasn't one thing where the guy with the five talents said, hey, I'm putting my money here, and he got 10 talents back. This is a period of time, so transactions happen, and they may you know, buy and sell different things and invest the money differently. So this is a pretty significant period of time where they've had to use some savvy and some, some business sense to, to increase that money. So it wasn't a one-time transaction. It was a period of time. And to be fair, doubling your investment is a pretty, pretty normal return in that day. So it wasn't like today where you get like 0.71% on your savings account. Doubling your investment was a pretty pretty fair return for that day. So up until now, it's all pretty typical, except for the interesting part where he's given different amounts to different people, and the one guy decided not to do anything. So let's read on. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the guy with the five talents comes. He says, hey, I've made five more. And the master goes, fantastic. That's a great job. Verse 22. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, master, you have delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So similar to the guy with the five talents, the guy with the two talents came back, hey, I doubled your money, and the master's like, fantastic, great job. I'm going to put you over more. So kind of the same reaction for both, even though one actually created more return, five talents, than the other one with two. We'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. So he basically says, I dug a hole, put your stuff in the hole, and I dug it up today, and I'm giving it back to you. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew 
that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Now let's pause there for a minute. There's an interesting punctuation mark there that I think we need to understand. It's a question mark. Because the master's not agreeing with, his, with, the, with the lazy guy's assertion that he gathers where he doesn't sow. He's saying, he's mocking him in his assertion. So oftentimes we read over that and we're like, well, yeah, he's agreeing. He is a, he is a, a tough man. That's not what he's saying. He's mocking the servant's laziness. He's pointing out to him that the very thing that you're afraid of is what's going to happen. And we see that in the next verses. Verse 27. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So all the guy had to do was take the money to a bank like we would do today, and at least something good would happen. He would get some interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even, that, even, that he, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Pretty dramatic. You know, a little scary. So two used their talents well, different amounts. Kind of achieved the same return, but not the same amount. And then one decided, I'm just going to be... This guy's kind of a bad guy, or I'm going to use that as an excuse to be lazy. I'm going to, you know, just bury the money and go have a good time, and then I'll give it back to him when he gets back, and he'll be fine. So oftentimes we read this story, and we think, wow, what a great story about being responsible with our finances. You know, because we should be very careful with the finances God's entrusted with us, and we should be responsible for those. But I think there's a different level to this, and, and I, think it's, I think we find that if we dig a little deeper, a couple of things I want to point out. The first thing in this story is the master that he's speaking of is himself. It's Jesus. It's Christ. That's the master that he speaks of. And what he's doing is he's telling the disciples the story of when he's going to leave this earth and be gone for an unknown period of time and someday return. And he's saying to them, I'm the master and I'm entrusting you with different resources, different kinds of things. But what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to build my kingdom with those things. And then someday I'll return, and there will be an accounting for that. And the interesting thing, the talent idea, it's, I've always marveled over that being the actual talent being the word that was the unit of measure because there's so many different plays you could do on that, but when we think of that, not in terms of money or in terms of valuables, but in terms of resources, maybe actual talents, things that God's entrusted us with, gifts, opportunities, it starts to take on a little different meaning. You know, for some of us, some of us have more talents. Some of us have less talents. God's decided who's going to have what. Some of us have been... You know, we, we accepted Christ at an early age. We've been exposed to the church our whole life. We know a lot of scripture because we've been in church our whole life, and we can quote all kinds of scripture, and we know a lot of that background. And some of us are brand new. Some of us may have walked down front Christmas Eve, and we don't know all that stuff yet. But we all have resources and opportunities that can impact the kingdom. Even the disciples were treated differently. Peter, James, and John were clearly the inner circle of the disciples. 
So it's so interesting that even though we don't know how much he gave them, we know that he strategically gave them different amounts. I think the other important point is the guy who didn't do anything with it, he was held accountable. There was a penalty for that because Jesus said, I'm going to give you, he said to his disciples, I'm going to equip you to bring people to me, and that's what I need you to do. So how does this apply to us? So let's back up to this idea of resolutions. Let's say that we decided that because of this idea that God has entrusted us with resources and we need to use those to further his kingdom, we need to rewrite or redo our resolutions in a way that reflects that. And now you're saying, oh boy, he's about to tell us that our New Year's resolutions should be preach on the street corner, read your Bible every day, and give all your money to the church. That's not what I'm saying. Those are all good things. But those may not, things, may, may not be things that we're each individually gifted with. What I am going to challenge you to do is to look at the things that you believe God has placed on your heart through the lens of how they could further his kingdom. Now, does that mean you have to change your resolutions? Maybe, but not necessarily. Does it mean you have to reprioritize them? Maybe. Not necessarily. What I'm asking you to do is put a kingdom spin on your resolutions. And here's an interesting part of that. Maybe the reason we can't get a higher success rate with resolutions is because we don't have the right motive. You know, maybe that picture of how you looked in high school is just not enough motivation. I mean hair's not going to grow back, no matter how much weight you lose. You know, maybe making more money is not a good enough resolution to go through the pain of trying to get that promotion. Maybe it's our motives that are holding us back, that are making that, especially those of us over 50, 14%, um, it's holding us back. So here's what I would say. What if we looked at our resolutions as tools instead of goals? What if they were tools to be used for the kingdom instead of the goal that we're trying to reach? Let me give you some examples. Let's take lose weight and get healthy. Seems like the number one, especially after the Christmas feast we've all had. Why do we want to lose weight and get healthy? I mean, we're not going to start playing football again. You know, um, like I said, our hair's not going to grow back. Um, we want to look better. I mean, yeah, we're all a little bit vain, so we want to look better, so that's, that's fair. We want to appear to those around us that we got it all together. Maybe there's some medical things. I know for me a couple of years ago it was a medical issue. You know, we've got to get, I don't want to take those pills the rest of my life. But what if the... What if, the, what if that was just a tool for the kingdom? What if getting healthy was a way to have more energy? What if it was a way to have more energy so you could do more? What if it was a way to have more energy so you could achieve your other goals? What if one of your goals is to spend time with your family, and the reason you can't do that is because you get home at night and you're so tired because you're out of shape, you just don't have any energy left for the kids? God wants us to have strong families. God wants us to spend time with each other. What if it was to have more energy so you could 
go on a mission trip. Or you could come on Sundays and, and serve at one service and go to the other. Or get involved in some other mission. What if it's feeding the homeless? But what if that energy is a tool to do something as a kingdom impact? What if it was as simple as, hey, to lose weight, i got to go to the gym. What if I look at my gym time instead of being, oh, this is what I have to do to lose weight, to there's people all around me, there's opportunity. What if I strike up a conversation and then get the opportunity to either share Christ with someone or invite them to church? What if there's somebody that I know, my neighbor, who I've been wanting to get that opportunity, and it's just not happening by passing on the street? And I'm like, hey, let's go to the gym together. Let's build a relationship so that maybe that opportunity happens. Another one I saw a lot is volunteering to help others. Why do we volunteer? Let's be honest. Why do we really volunteer? Feels good, right? If we feel good when we help others. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that feel good only works most of the time. When you get up in the morning and you don't feel good, the idea of, Feeling good mentally doesn't push you through that. But what if the motive was to create an opportunity? What if serving with the kids was, an, was a motive? The motive was to create an opportunity to, for them to get to know Christ. What if, the, what if volunteering to help with the students or volunteering to be in the parking team? or What if that was a, uh, just a way to create opportunities? What about making more money, getting a better job? I mean, we all want to make more money, right? I mean, there's an easy answer to that. Make more money, you can give more money to the kingdom, right? You know, that's an easy one. But what if you were creative? What if the goal in making more money and getting that promotion was to do something that really made a difference? You know, we had, I had a couple people come to me at the end of this year and say, I need to make a donation, and I really want to, I just don't know what I want to do with it. I don't, I don't know. I want to make a difference. And I got the joy of sitting with them and giving them opportunities, ways that they can make a difference, both here and outside our walls and in Africa and Guatemala and, and, you know, Haiti. But what if that was the motive? Would that make it easier to have that difficult meeting if the motive was an eternal goal? What about getting a better education? What if the motive for getting a better education wasn't necessarily to facilitate a better job or to make more money? What if the motive was to be more equipped to expand the kingdom? What would that look like? Might change what you study? Might change who you study with? Education's not the goal, it's a tool. What about managing that stress? Don't we all want to be able to manage stress? I mean, we all have stress. It's like a I was reading something while I was gone, and there's and it, the whole point was take an hour a day and turn off the noises. I'm actually kind of known around the office as Mr. Noise. I have lots of noises going off in my office. Um, also at home. I said take an hour each day and turn off the noise because the noise brings stress. But what if we had that peace? And then what if we used that peace, that peaceful time, to be in prayer, to com- commune with God, to find out what it is he wants us to do to make a kingdom impact. Because here's the thing. I can stand up here and give you ideas, 
I don't know what God's plan for you. I don't know if he's got the five talents plan for you or the two or the one or 17 or what kind they are or what they're made up of. You have to figure that out. That only happens in a conversation. A conversation where you're quiet enough to hear what God's saying. Not audibly, but to hear what he's saying in your heart. What if the peace allowed that in? What if managing stress was a way to open the door for God to speak into your life? What about quitting, quit drinking, quit smoking, etc.? And there's many great motives for that, different, different reasons, you know, save money, feel better. But what if, what if I try to take that one and go, okay, how can, obviously there's some, some you know, God focus in quitting those things because as we know, you know, or being able to do those things in moderation, but as we know, those things can be damaging to our bodies. So we want our bodies to be a temple, and that's the same way with losing weight. But what if it was a little different? Because... What if we decided, I want this goal to be kingdom-oriented, so I'm going to take the money that I would have spent on this, and I'm going to put it towards something better. I'm going to sponsor a child, or I'm going to sponsor a ministry, or I'm going to help someone in need, or I'm going to help a family member. What if that whole motive for that goal became kingdom-minded? Would it be easier? Would it be easier to stay away from those things if the motive wasn't just abstinence, but it was about helping someone or drawing somebody closer to God? What about more time with your family? How would it shape the time that you get with your family if the motive was, how can I draw them closer to God? How would it change the quality of that time? So I guess what I'm saying is we don't have to change our plan. We don't have to, you know, God's put these things on our heart. We don't have to change them. But maybe we need to change how we look at them because these things are not goals. They're tools. The goal is the kingdom. So one thing we talked about earlier was having a coach. Like maybe having a coach to help you through. What would a perfect coach look like? He would understand the issue, so if it's a lose-weight coach, he would be, like, super fit. You know, if he's a, uh, a uh, career coach, he would be, like, really accomplished. If he's a financial coach, he'd have lots of money and boats and stuff. But he would understand your issue. And then he'd have to understand you, right? Because he's got to translate that into how you think. And then he'd have to understand how to get you there. And then you have to be available because here's the tough part. You might be able to find that person, but they're going to be expensive and available in a small window every week. I mean, I can send you to a thousand websites. I can get you some of the sharpest talent in the country. You got to pay for it and you get them for an hour a week. But what if they were available all the time? Where as you struggle, you're able to go, hey, man, I'm struggling. I can't do this. I think you know where I'm going. If our motives are God, if they're God-oriented, then our coach is Jesus. And he's available all the time. He understands the issue, all of them. Understands you better than you do. Knows how to get you there. Even gave us a book 
Most of it's in here. It's available whenever you want. It's an unlimited relationship. So, you know, it's interesting as we think through this, but as we begin to apply this to our life, why don't we apply it to other things? Why don't we apply it to our business? A lot of business owners here. What if our business took on that approach? What if our business, and I know people here that do this. I know people that hire people so they can share Jesus with them. I know people that hire people because they want to help them, because they want to take care of them, because they want that opportunity. What if we, as a church, what if our businesses took on that shape? I mean, it's one thing if we all do it, that'd be amazing. What if we went beyond that? What if our businesses and our associations took on that shape and the things that we're involved in? So then we have to turn around and put the mirror in front of us. I'm standing up here preaching at you. What about our church? What, is, what do goals look like for our church? I mean, we're humans, people that run the church. We've got many people in leadership positions at West Pines, and we've got elders and lots of staff, and, and we think we know what to do. Some of us have years in ministry, and, you know, we talk to people with years in ministry, and, you know, we, we, we think we have it figured out. So we might say things like, we're people. Need more people. We if to reach more people, we need more people. We need more money. Minister, you know, I hate this phrase, but people say ministry costs money. Yes, I know. Everything costs money. We need more money because to reach more people, we need more money to do things like we did for Christmas. We need money to do that. We need bigger buildings because we need a place for those people. We need a place for them to come. We need bigger services. I mean, I don't know if you were here Christmas Eve, but it was. Christmas Eve Eve also, pretty crazy. So as humans, we begin to look at the things that we think are success. But what if we pulled back and we said, all right, but Jesus is the head of the church. What does he want? Jesus wants people to be rescued. That's all he wants. He wants people to be rescued. Now those things... The more people, the more money, the more the bigger buildings. Those may be indicators that that's happening. But those are not the goal. Those are the tools. The goal is rescue. It's rescuing people. If we all come here every week, and it's the same 800 of us every week, and nobody's rescued, we're the guy Buried the talent in the dirt. And we've sat down and we've talked about what does it look like for West Pines to be driven by that idea of rescue. And over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about that. You know, Roby talked about in the announcements, we're going to share about what does that look like for West Pines? What does it look like for you to be a part of that? How are we going to do that? Why are we going to do that? Does it change what we do? Does it reprioritize what we do? But we're going to take our future and redo our resolution through the lens 
of what Jesus wants, which is people to be rescued. I'm going to show you a video. It's about people that were rescued. I'm sure there's others of, like me that went up to the front of the church and I, I give my life to Christ, but, you know, it, it just, I don't know, I, I just, I, I still didn't change. Looking back, I didn't know, I didn't value my life as much then as I do now. I didn't care as much for myself or for, for others' lives, other souls. Friends I used to have, I don't have them anymore. I mean, I still, I still know them, but we don't do the kind of things that we used to do. Because I was, I was really desperate. I was really sad and depressed. And uh, immediately, you know, I, I felt, I felt that healing in my heart. And, and for me, that's what he means. He heals hard. Yeah. Before I gave my life to Christ, I was just sex, drugs, and rock and roll every day of my life, and thought that was the greatest life in the world. Except that there was. There was something really major missing. There's my, my entire life was shifted towards another direction. It, for with my career, it was from doing something that I wanted to do to doing something that would glorify God. From the way that I acted around people, um, instead of it being a popularity, like I want people to like me thing, it's how can I reflect Christ so that even if they've never heard of him they would know of him through my actions I have made new friends within a different community and that's within the Christ community so I mean it's completely 180 degree 360 degree turn yeah, 360 totally completely but I live now to serve serve God I asked him to help me um, forgive those people that have hurt me in the past, and I have learned to uh, to be patient in the Lord to to make that change of me, and it, 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 I didn't have to wait that long because He immediately did it. After I gave my life to Christ, was I no longer had the desire to do the things that were normal for my life. My life completely—I became a new person. never get tired of hearing stories about how Jesus completely changes a life. Completely. Start to finish. You can't ever get tired of hearing a story of someone who was struggling, someone who was lost, and they say, Jesus rescued me and my life is completely different. I don't know, I assume many of, uh, many of us were here at our Christmas services and saw at the end of the services, as a product of much prayer, as a product of much inviting, the dozens of people that came forward 
throughout the course of those three services saying right there on, on, with their families or their friends on Christmas Eve on the 23rd saying, I, I want my life, I, I want to follow Jesus, I, I want my life rescued. Were, were some of you there for that? You remember seeing that incredible moment of watching what God did? <clears throat> And here's what was happening in that moment. That wasn't something that was like, hey, great service that you guys put on. That's not what that was about. What that was about was God saying, okay, we're, we're going to, I'm going to use this group of people. They're going to take risks. Many of them, they're going to go out and they're going to invite. And we saw one of the most powerful, powerful Christmases we've ever had at West Pines because God rallied an entire church to say, we want to see people rescued. I mean, what could be greater than that? What could be greater than seeing an entire life changed? Because it's not just a life. It's not just the rest of someone's life that's changed. It's their entire eternity that has been changed in that moment. It's the most incredible thing that we could give our time to, we could give a year to, or we could give our lives to. Pastor Matt was sharing about resolutions, and I wanted to come up at the end and just share a little bit about this series that we're, going, that we're going to be going into starting next week because the best possible thing, I mean, could there be anything greater we could spend our time, our year, our lives doing than being part of a movement that goes out to see people rescued? That's what we're going to be talking about starting next week, five-year plan, what God wants to do through us together, our families, our lives. What does God want to do through us over the next Five years, a lot of prayer, a lot of preparation, even fasting and prayer has gone into this series, and I want to challenge you to be here next week. Church, we've, I don't think we've ever pushed you this hard, but if West Pines is your church home, be here next week, January 11th. I'm going to ask you two things. Be here through the series, and second thing is this is the time to get plugged into a community group if you're not already plugged into a group as we're talking through these things in our groups. Lastly, maybe you're here and you say, look, I don't have a, a church home. This is the series to join us for because if you're looking for a church home, you can find out what God's doing here and maybe decide to make West Pines your church home. Last thing is this. Some of you might be here and say, look, I, I heard those stories. I heard Pastor Matt talking about having a purpose in your life, and I see those stories of people being rescued, and you say, you know what? I that's where I'm at. I, I feel like I need God's purpose. I need my life realigned with some purpose for, to live for him. I, I need to be rescued. I, I'm struggling like so many of those people described how they were struggling before they were rescued by Jesus. And if that's you, here's what I want to ask you to do, a simple thing. If that's you, we want to talk with you about that. There are answers to that. We want to help you find Jesus and get rescued. And so here are a couple things you can do. There's, on your connection card, there's a couple different boxes you can check. You could check, I still have lots of questions. I'm not sure that I'm saved. If that's you, check off one of those, questions, one of those boxes. We will follow up with you and discuss those things. Or you can pull one of us aside at the end of the service. Church, let me pray for us before we're dismissed. Father, we thank you that you have entrusted us. Jesus, when you left, you entrusted us with all kinds of resources, all kinds, and to each one of us differently. And just said something simple. You say, invest it for me. And so, God, I pray that we have this innate desire to live lives of great purpose so that one day we stand before you and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. God, that's what we want for ourselves, for our families. That's what we want as a church. Would you do that? And God, I pray that you would richly bless this vision series starting next week. Lord, would you use us as a church 
to see this community, this city, rescued. We call this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.